Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Be seated. As you're taking your seats, if you would, turn in your bulletins to our scripture text today as we return to the book of Habakkuk. Or if you'd like, you'd turn in your own Bibles. Might be quicker to look at your bulletins. Habakkuk chapter 2. Today our text is verses 1 through 20. I'll really be zooming in and focusing particularly on verse 4 and a little bit on verse 14. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Whoever whines a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as shale. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you've plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you, For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that prepares labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and other shame will come upon your glory. 
The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. Habakkuk. Seemingly an obscure little book, isn't it? Habakkuk, this minor prophet that is so hard to find, as all the minor prophets are hard to find, right? Habakkuk, so obscure seeming, and yet isn't it amazing how some of its words are so well known? Verse verse 4 again, notice. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. Now we're not so familiar with that, but we are familiar with the second half of that verse, aren't we? What does it say? But the righteous, the just, shall what? Live by faith or by His faith. And we know verse 14. We, so many of you love verse 14, don't you? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Two amazing verses. And the second half of verse 4 alone is quoted at least three times in the New Testament. And it is known by virtually every self-consciously Protestant person that knows just a little bit about church history and just a little bit about the Bible, right? We believe in justification by faith. What? Faith alone. The just shall live by faith. We know that verse. We know it, whether it's from Habakkuk or whether, or whether Paul's quoting it in Romans chapter 1 or whether he's quoting it in Galatians or whether the author of Hebrews is quoting it. We know it. We may not, though, so fully know that both of these very familiar verses find themselves embedded in this larger, gracious answer of God to a perplexed and bold prophet, right? We we, we might not recognize that these two verses are found in this answer God gives to Habakkuk. Now remember Habakkuk's questions, remember his complaints, right? He starts off in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, complaining that it seems to him as if God's not listening. He's been praying unto the Lord about the wickedness and the, and the evil and the violence and the injustice and the perversion and the idolatry of the, His people, of the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, of, of the church of His day. He's been crying out to the Lord, and Lord, aren't you going to answer? Right? That's how he starts. That's his first question. That's his first complaint. That's his first perplexity. And God answers. Indeed. I heard you. And this is how I'm going to answer. This is how I'm going to answer. I'm going to bring those Chaldeans, a.k.a. Babylonians. I'm going to bring them. They're going to come in. They're going to march in. They're going to ransack Judah. They're going to ransack Jerusalem. And they're going to cart you off into exile. That's how I'll answer your prayer. That's how I'm going to discipline my people. And so then what does Habakkuk do? 
He complains again. He cries out again. He's perplexed again. He says, what? Yes, your people need to be disciplined, but by the Chaldeans? By the Babylonians, you're going to use them? They're more wicked than your people are. You see, Habakkuk's dilemma was over how God, who is holy, and God, who is good, would use such an unholy people to chasten his own people. Habakkuk, in reality, is dealing with what, was, what is so often known as the problem of evil. The problem of evil. Now remember his methodology. First thing is he doesn't not deny that there's evil out there. Right? He, he examines what's around him. He observes it. He thinks about it. He thinks about the sins of his people, and then he thinks about the evil of the Chaldeans, right? So it's not as if he's oblivious to what's going on. No, he thinks about it. But what does he then do? That's the first step. He thinks about, he observes, he meditates upon the evils that are around him. But then what does he do? He pivots. He pivots from the problems to what? He pivots to the problem solver. He pivots to God. He begins to think about God's character. He begins to think about God's promises. And he meditates. He rehearses over all that he knows. He thinks about his theology. And oftentimes when he's thinking about his theology, or when we are, we can then apply that theology to the problems that we are concerned about. And oftentimes we'll find an answer, right? That's his methodology. Think about the problems, then do his theology, then apply his theology, and maybe there's an answer, but sometimes there's not. And that leads him to this next step. What's his next step in his methodology? When his theology doesn't bring him an answer that's at least clear to him. He cries out. He prays. He prays unto the Lord. He pours out his soul unto the Lord about such problems. And then what does he do? He waits and he watches. He waits and he watches. He takes his prayer unto the Lord and he leaves it there. And in faith, he's watching for the answer of God. That's what he's doing. So guess what happens in Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning with verse 2. The Lord answers. The Lord answers. Habakkuk had placed his faith in the Lord, and the Lord answered him. And the Lord gives him this answer throughout the rest of this chapter. And it is in this answer that we find verses 4 and 14. So let's focus on these verses. Let's, let's consider as we think about God's answer, let's think about this. Let's think of, first of all, let's consider everybody's problem. There's a problem that we all face. We're going to consider that problem. Then we're going to consider God's answer. Then we're going to think about two responses to God's answer. And there's really only two. And then lastly, we're going to consider the one perfect responder. Everybody's problem. God's answer to that problem. Two responses to God's answer. And then one perfect responder. First, everybody's problem. Again, Habakkuk is dealing with what problem? What's the issue? It's the problem of evil. And that's nothing new, right? 
Job, so many years before Habakkuk, he wrestled with the problem of evil. Here he is suffering so much and he doesn't understand it. He cries out, does he not? Job wrestled with it. Joseph wrestled with it in Egypt, right? His brothers had sold him into slavery. Evil. How could this be? What's the Lord doing? How could a holy God use that or handle that or be at work in all that? Joseph dealt with it. The psalmist, the one who wrote Psalm 73, he deals with it. All these before Habakkuk. Now Habakkuk deals with it. And guess what? Believers ever since have dealt with such a problem. The problem of evil. Now atheists and skeptics, they gleefully think that this is a problem just for Christians or just for believers. But brothers and sisters, it's a problem for, for everyone in reality. For skeptics and atheists and materialists, the problem of evil is the existence of evil. The problem of evil is the concept of evil in, in itself. You see, everyone, and I do mean everyone, Everyone instinctively knows there is evil, right? There is evil in this world. But the atheist, the skeptic, the materialist has no accounting that's worth anything. No accounting for such evil. They have no way really truly to account for evil. And for, for why what they think is evil, somebody else should think is evil. I mean, after all, if this is all there is, material things, things that you can see, touch, and hear, and taste, or you can examine under the microscope, if this is all there is, if, if all there is is energized material, if there is no creator... If there is no God over all things, then there is no binding rule of right or wrong. There is no universally binding standard by which to judge something as either evil or good. There's just what is. And if what is is just the product of chance and a lot of time, then I don't care if you think a part of what is, is evil. I might not think it's evil. And who, who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Says who? It's just what is. There's not what ought to be. Yet materialists and skeptics can't live that way, can they? They can't live that way. They know that there's such a thing as evil. And even if they try to live that way, they really can't, they can't consistently. I remember the story of Francis Schaeffer in Labrie, the great Christian apologist and philosopher. He's there in, in Labrie up in the Swiss Alps. A lot of college students are backpacking across Europe every summer. Some of them will drop in. They would enjoy their hospitality, the hospitality of Francis and Edith. And he's got a group of people in the little living room, in the chalet, and they're having this discussion. And one of the, one of the individuals, one guy, is basically saying, there's no right or wrong. There's no, really no right or wrong. About that time, Edith had had a pot, on, a kettle on the stove, heating water for tea. 
He hears the kettle going off. Francis goes. He gets the kettle of hot boiling water. He comes in and he goes and acts as if he is going to pour the hot water over the head of the guy who just said there's no right or wrong. And guess what the guy says? No, don't do that. Why? Because it would be evil. I think about R.C. Sproul saying about those who say there are, there are no absolute true, true things, there are no absolute rights or wrongs. He says, well, try to steal that person's wallet and see what they say. Right? Everybody knows there's evil in this world. But unbelievers, skeptics, atheists, materialists have no way of accounting for it. They have a problem with evil. For the believer, for the Christian, the problem is something different. Our seeming problem is trying to reconcile the existence of evil in this world with the belief in a God who is all good and all powerful, right? And Habakkuk puts a finer point on that problem. How could such an all-powerful, how could such an all-good God, holy God, use wicked Chaldeans as an instrument in His hands to chasten His people and yet remain holy and good? Habakkuk asked, Why do you look, God, idly on traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? And he continues in chapter 1, he says, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is Babylon going to keep on doing that? In other words, God, why do you allow this terrible oppression and this evil? Why use the Babylonians? Now, attempts to answer that question or those sorts of questions and to vindicate God, those are known as theodicies. Fancy word, philosophical word, a theodicy. A seeking to vindicate God in the light of evil. And church fathers such as Augustine and Irenaeus offered and developed theodicies. And philosophers have offered theodicies. And poets have offered theodicies. I taught for the first time this year Dante's Inferno, the first part of his divine comedy. And I was struck as I taught that to 10th graders at how much that poem is a theodicy, a seeking to defend God in the face of persistent evil. Now as laudable as theodicies are, God can speak for Himself. God doesn't need Augustine to defend Him. God didn't need Irenaeus to defend Him. God doesn't need Dante to defend Him. I mean, I'm grateful people are trying to work through such a problem. But God can speak for Himself, and guess what? He does. And He does here. In Habakkuk chapter 2, He answers. Now Habakkuk might not be completely satisfied with the answer, but God provides an answer. And notice he doesn't blast, like I said last time, he doesn't blast Habakkuk. No. He graciously answers him. So listen now, that's everybody's problem, evil. Now what's God's answer? I'll be quick. God's response to Habakkuk in this chapter is pretty clear. Yes, I will use the Chaldeans. 
I will use the Babylonians, Habakkuk. But the wicked Babylonians, they're going to suffer judgment for all their brutality and all their evil. Yes, I'm going to use them. But they're not going to get away with their brutality and with their evil. They will not be absolved from their wicked ways. And notice in his answer what God is saying. First of all, he's saying, Habakkuk, though it may not look like it to you, I'm still holy. I'm still just. I'm still righteous. They will be judged. They're not going to get away with their own evil. And secondly, notice he's also saying, although it may not look like it to you, Habakkuk, I'm still good. For I'm going to ultimately use these Chaldeans ransacking Jerusalem, taking the Israelites into captivity, into exile. I am going to use that as a part of my glorious, glorious plan for the knowledge of the glory of God to spread across the entire globe as the waters cover the sea. And that Habakkuk is good. I'm just and I'm good. You see, dear ones, just because we can't understand how in the minutiae, how God, a holy God, can use evil without sin, that doesn't mean He doesn't use evil without sin. And it doesn't mean He must not use evil and yet nevertheless not sin. And it doesn't mean He won't use evil and yet not sin. Don't fall into the trap of saying or thinking, unless I can understand it all, I'm not believing it. Who are you, old man? We're before a holy, majestic, amazing God. We cannot fully comprehend Him or His ways. But he is telling us he's just and he's good. Notice the greatness of this answer. Will wicked individuals and wicked nations, will they ultimately win? Everybody say with me, no. No. Did the Babylonians ultimately continue on as this wicked, this vile, this violent nation that controls the world? No. The Persians would soon take them out, right? Just like that. How about Rome? I mean, they, they lasted a little bit longer. But are we, do, do we still have a Roman Empire today? No. How about Nazi Germany? At the height of their power, it looks like they're going to do what? With their allies, take over the world. Where are they now? In the dustbin of history. How about the Soviet Union? Yeah, I know we're still having problems with communists and wherever they might be. But is there still the Soviet Union? No. How about Idi Amin? Is he still wreaking havoc in Africa? No. How about Pol Pot? 
How about any sort of dictator? How about any sort of wicked individual or nation? Will they last? No. No. So child of God, guess what? Armed with this knowledge, you can turn off the TV from those talking or oftentimes shouting heads on cable news stations who are just ginning up fear all the time. You can turn that off. You can close your laptop. You can put it away. You can go to bed. You can lay your head on your pillow. And you can sleep sweetly because your God is sovereign. And He is using all things for His glorious kingdom purposes. And evil nations and evil men will meet their match. God's in control. No no matter how bad it seems like it is. That leads us to responses. How do you respond to such an answer? Well, there's really only one of two ways. There's only one of two responses to such an answer. And those responses are the responses of belief or unbelief. Verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith or by his faith. Now the exact translation of the first part of that verse is a bit difficult. But it's basically this. The proud, his soul's not upright. The proud, his soul's not upright. In other words, there, there are the proud. There are the arrogant. There are the unrighteous. And that will include the Chaldeans. Okay? That's one response. It's a response of pride and unbelief. And then there are those who are the opposite. The humble and the righteous. Those who are, by God's grace, in right standing with God. And who are they? They are the ones who what? Believe. They're the ones who have faith. They're the ones who live in accordance with that faith. They're the ones who hear this answer of Almighty God, and though they may not understand it in its minutia, in its minute detail and working out, and all the exact hows of how God's going to do it, they nevertheless do what? They trust God. By God's grace, they trust His Word. They trust that He's in sovereign control. Calvin said that this God-given faith is that which that strips us of all arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God that we may seek salvation from Him alone. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Either we view our lives in terms of our belief in God and the conclusions we are entitled to draw from that belief, or our outlook is based upon a rejection of God and the corresponding denials. We may either withdraw ourselves from God, be proud from the way of faith in God, or else we may live by faith in God. 
And Lloyd-Jones went on to say, he said, this is the great watershed of life. And all of us, all of us, every single one of you, and every single person outside, all of us are on one side or the other. Either we take the bare word of Almighty God and live by it, or else we do not. There's only two responses. Believe or don't. And dear one, every one responds either in arrogance and unbelief or in humility and a God-given faith. There's no other option. The great mathematician and philosopher, French philosopher, Blaise Pascal, put it well in his Ponces. And he gave, he gave the image of a, of a ship. He said, the ship's out at sea, out at storm, and there's a port, there's a harbor. The ship's either heading into the harbor or it's not. It's either heading into the harbor or it's not. There are not any other choices. The question is, which are we? Which are you? Are you trusting in yourself and your own thinking and your own smarts trying to figure out all these things, the problem of evil, etc., etc.? Are you trusting somebody else, some others? Be it government, be it armies, be whatever. Or will you trust in the sure word of almighty and all good God? Verse 4. Behold, his soul's puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous, the just, shall live by his faith. Yes, I know, dear ones, that things may look bleak for us in the church in the West. And I, I had to pause there this morning when I was preaching through that portion of the sermon and said, that's almost laughable for us to think it's bleak in the church in the West. When brothers and sisters throughout the world face so much harder opposition and pains and struggles and problems, and yet I do know that for us it's looking bleaker and bleaker and bleaker. It seems like the hordes of rank unbelief grow stronger every day. The heathen prosper, right? The ones who arrogantly flaunt their ways and who would cancel all of us and silence all and every one of us unless we capitulate to their worldview, to their ideas, until we get, as they might say, until we get on the right side of history. Bonk. But those are the ones, those sort of people, they're the ones who are in the ascendancy. You know it. They are the ones who are the big tech moguls. They are the ones who are in virtually every means of communication. They are the ones who are in every newsroom. They are the ones who are in high office, right? God says, I know. Now trust me. I know. Now trust me. 
But it's not just merely societal problems, it's personal problems too, right? The Lowry's, they're a family in Matthews. They've visited here when we've had concerts. We've sat in these pews. One of their sons is now tragically dead. It may look bleak for them. It may look bleak for the mother who loses her child at the hands of the violent. It may look bleak for the father who loses his job at the hands of greedy investors. Evil strikes personally too, doesn't it? God says, I know. Now trust me. I know. Now trust me. Trust that I will answer. Brothers and sisters, trust in the God who is sovereign and He's working out His sovereign purposes and trust when it looks the bleakest. Trust and then obey. Run with that message. Run. Take it. Take it to an unbelieving world until that great and coming day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the world, cover the earth, as the waters cover the sea. Trust and obey. Will you fail? Yes! Yes! Dear ones, it's not easy. Trusting's not easy in the face of great evil. I'm not naive. Don't be naive. It's not easy. Will you fail to trust as you should? Yes. But go with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Please take a Bible, either your own or a pew Bible, and go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, we have the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit taking up the Greek translation of Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And he does something beautiful under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see it. I want you to see it particularly when your faith seems to be failing against the backdrop of an evil, wicked, broken world. Okay? Notice what he does. Let's pick up with verse 37. For, now he's going to quote, yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay. Now Habakkuk had said, let me remind you, it will surely come, it will not delay. In other words, Habakkuk was saying that the Lord was saying to Habakkuk, the answer about evil in the world, that answer is coming, Habakkuk. And the author of Hebrews tells us that that answer is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming one. 
And the author continues, notice in verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Habakkuk had said, the righteous shall live by his faith. And the author of Hebrews says, yes, and guess who that is? It's Jesus. It's my righteous one. It's the one in whom I'm well pleased. Didn't the Father say that at the baptism of Jesus? When Jesus says, I'm going to take on the role of Messiah and go to the cross. Didn't the Father say that about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? When Jesus is turning His nose to go to the cross? Jesus is the answer to the problem of evil. He's the one who exercises perfect faith. And He's the one who sheds His blood for your imperfect faith. For your sin. Your faith may waver. No, it will waver. It may be wavering right now. But dear one, it's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. It's Jesus Christ. And it's His blood. But don't now miss verse 39. And because it is Jesus, brothers and sisters, hear what the author of Hebrews says once more. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Because of the faith of Jesus, because of the blood of Jesus, because He's the answer to the problem of evil, He will work out His holy purposes in you and He will build up His kingdom and your faith will be held in Him. That's the answer to the problem of evil. Let's pray. My simple prayer, Father, is give us such a faith. A faith in the perfectly faithful one. Faith in the one who laid down his life for us. Of course, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.